Hello, it's Vikas Pota, Chairman of the Vaki Foundation. You are listening to a session from our Global Education and Skills Forum, a place where leading politicians, businesses, philanthropists, activists, and of course, the world's best teachers share, debate, and discover new ways for education to transform our world. Keep the global conversation going and share your thoughts on the topics discussed with the hashtag GESF. Good morning. I'm Olivier Ollier from Emotive and welcome to the Global Education and Skills Forum 2019. We are here this morning um, to celebrate and hear the achievements of Mark Pollock. Mark Pollock is on a mission to cure paralysis and in order to do so, he understood that he not only needs to mobilize the research community, but also all of us. And this is why he's the co-founder of two very important organizations. One is the Mark Pollock Trust that is supporting research globally to find solutions to spinal cord injuries. The second one is Run in the Dark, an organization that makes us run every November across the world and that has already spread throughout 50 cities globally. Mark has been named a young global leader by the World Economic Forum and received two honorary doctorates one from the Royal College of Surgeons in Ireland. The other one is from Queen's University, Belfast. He's raised the South Pole, and recently, the TED Talk he gave with his partner, Simone George, has already reached 1.5 million views. Back in 2010, I fell from a second-story window onto the concrete below, and I don't know what happened, nobody does, but I suspect I got up to go to the bathroom that night. And as a blind person, I used to use my hand to find my way. That particular night, my hand found an open space where the closed window should have been, and I cartwheeled out. And the friends who found me thought I was dead. The doctors in intensive care suspected I was going to die. And when I realized what had happened, I wondered whether dying might have been the best outcome. I had fractured my skull, I had three bleeds on my brain, massive internal injuries, and I couldn't feel or move anything from my stomach down. All of that added to the blindness that had happened 12 years earlier. Now, I'm sure you can appreciate that I didn't choose any of it. I didn't choose the accident, the injuries, the consequences, none of it was my choice. But by way of making sense of it, I've come to acknowledge that sometimes we choose our challenges and sometimes challenges choose us. It's just the way it is. But what I'm more interested in is what we decide to do about it. I think that's what counts. And I'm going to talk a little bit about the decision to be a spectator or a competitor um, and a little bit about deciding to be a soloist or a collaborator over the next 15 minutes or so. And I am going to use uh, the backdrop of my expertise. You've got to be an expert, if you, I suppose, if you're at a forum like this. And uh, unfortunately for you, my expertise is uh, in acquiring disabilities. I'm almost world class at that particular endeavor. Uh, so I'll use that upbeat, upbeat storyline as the backdrop for my session. Um, but I'm going to go back for this first theme to be a spectator or a competitor back to 1998, 20 years ago, whenever I 
could walk and when I could see. And at the time I was a student, soon to be graduate at Trinity College in Dublin. And after graduation, I was going to go and start a job in investment banking, which in 1998 was almost socially acceptable to say that you wanted to be an investment banker. Um, but more than I want to be an investment banker or a student, I was a sportsman and I was rowing for the university and also for my country. So I was someone who knew exactly who I was and exactly where I was going in life. And in the space of two weeks, that changed entirely when I lost my sight through detached retinas. And in those two weeks, I, was, I moved from the person that I just described to someone who was excluded from university life. I didn't think I was going to get a job, and I certainly wasn't involved in my crew anymore in my sport, sports team. In the space of two weeks, I lost my sight, but I also lost my identity, which is the purpose of telling you this story. And over the following 10 years, I set about on a quest to try and rebuild my identity. I got back into rowing, winning silver and bronze medals in the Commonwealth Games, rowing for Northern Ireland, which wasn't the World Championships, it wasn't the Olympic Games, and my desire to race conspired to keep me going, racing in deserts and mountains and oceans. And it wasn't really until the 10th anniversary that I lost my sight that the opportunity arose to take part in an event at the level that I had aspired to before I lost my sight. And it came in the form of a 43-day expedition race in the coldest, most remote, most challenging place on Earth in Antarctica. It was the first race to the South Pole since the uh, Shackletons and Scots and Amundsens went down to Antarctica 100 years before. And to do it, I would have to drag sledges for up to 16 hours a day on cross-country skis through crevasse fields. We'd be racing against Norwegian Special Forces and British Royal Marines and people who had raced to the North Pole previously. And after a thousand kilometers at temperatures as low as minus 50, I had the chance to be the first blind person uh, to race to the South Pole. Uh, to arrive at the South Pole. And I simply had to be part of it. Now, to do it, I would have to raise 150,000 euro and find two teammates who'd be willing to take a chance on a blind guy. And um, in Ireland, we don't have much snow. So uh, no expertise is really what, I, what I'm saying when it comes to polar travel. And my first teammate was an Irish guy, certainly who looked the part. I mean, he had a big shaggy beard and long hair. He looked like an extra out of a remake from a Antarctic uh, history movie. Uh, but he, he had a rugby background. Strength and conditioning was his thing, not polar travel. Uh, and when we were thinking who might we get to join our team, you could have gone for a British explorer, but the British, unfortunately, in history, um, don't have a great history on returning from Antarctica, as evidenced by <laughs> Captain Scott. So we flew over Great Britain to Norway to try and find uh, a Norwegian who might be able to guide us to the South Pole. And um, we found that guy in, uh, called Inga Solheim, a seasoned campaigner, grew up in the snow, grew up in the mountains. And he uh, took a chance on two Irish guys 
to go to and race to the South Pole. So to give, to give you a sense of what it was like, I've got this little video before I tell you the point of the story. So let's play the South Pole video, please. Now, the question you may be asking yourself is, why am I showing you my holiday footage from 10 years ago? Uh, and the purpose of the exercise is not uh, just to indulge myself on proving to you through video footage that I actually did arrive at the South Pole. Um, to, to explain this story about rebuilding my identity, I want to go back to the money, the 150,000 euro, because I thought some big sponsor would put, you know, give us 150,000 euro and put a logo on the side of our sledge, but you know, not even the penguins go into the interior of uh, Antarctica, so no one was going to see the corporate logo. Uh, we didn't get the money off a big corporate, but as part of the panic to try and raise the money, I thought if we wrote a book about it, we could put a corporate logo on the front of the book, and surely they would give us um, money for that. And as part of this exercise, I got on to 30 of the top literary agents in London uh, through email, and then I followed up with phone calls to try and get hold of one and secure a big book advance. And I got through to a guy called Mark Lucas in London and explained my pitch, asked, told him I was be the first blind person to get to the South Pole. Surely he could find us a publishing deal so we could uh, raise the money for the entry fee. And he said to me, look, I'm surprised you've been put through to me because as everyone in my office knows, there's nothing I find more boring than icy tales of people who go to the North Pole, South Pole, climb Everest, and then come back and inflict a book upon us. So I'll not be trying to get you a publishing deal, although I wish you all the best with the race. And I thought it was a little harsh. Uh, his, I thought his, his words were a little harsh, I thought, but uh, he was absolutely right. There is no book for me to hand out at the end of this session, right? But I raised the money from lots of small donations, lots of people who wanted to be on the team, went and did the race, got the video, and I came back and I got invited onto the BBC in London on the breakfast show to tell our story for four and a half minutes. And as I walked out of the studio, I was checking my phone to see who had uh, seen me on TV, he, you know, needily checking my emails. And uh, there weren't too many, but uh, I did see an email from this guy, Mark Lucas, and I thought to myself, Big regrets, Mark Lucas. You've missed the boat now on this epic book. And I clicked on his email to see what his groveling words were going to be. And he said, Dear Mark, I've just watched you on BBC television, and I've got to tell you, I have not changed my mind. <laughs> you know, which I thought was wholly unnecessary to go to the trouble. <laughs> but the next question, of course, was the important point. He said, But what was it really about? What was it really about? And I suspect literary agents are in the business of finding out what's inside someone's head. Because it was never about the ice and the snow. It was never really about the hardship. It was simply me on a quest for 10 years to try and prove to myself that I could feel normal again, whatever normal is. That I didn't have to be on the sidelines as a spectator, that I could be a competitor pursuing success and risking failure, that I could indeed be in the arena again. And having proved that to myself, feeling unstoppable, feeling like I could be a competitor, not a spectator, I ended up a year later having that accident.
landing on the concrete below, finding myself in intensive care in hospital. And this second point is to perhaps debunk the hero narrative because spinal cord injury strikes at the heart of what it means to be human. And I discovered that it wasn't just the lack of feeling and movement, it also interferes with the body's internal systems that are designed to keep us alive. Nerve pain, spasms, infections, time in hospital, shortened lifespans, all these things are common. And in many parts of the world with the right supports, they're manageable. But what I found challenging, as I said this morning on stage, that up to this point in history, it had proven to be impossible to find a cure. Whilst at the same time, history is filled with accounts of the impossible made possible through human endeavor. And inspired by so many stories of exploration, I started asking myself, why can't that same human endeavor cure paralysis in our lifetime? And I started to search around the world for people working at the fringes, people who I like to call explorers, the scientists, the technologists, the people in labs. And to give you a sense of what I found, I got this little video, so let's play the next video, please. Just to tee up perhaps what we're going to talk about with Olivier, Olivier and, and uh, some questions from the floor. Coming from a sports background, convinced that competitors, the competitor mindset is how we win. We started to find lots and lots of world-class performers, world-class competitors working in robotics, electrical stimulation, um, nerve bridging, stem cells, optogenetics. Brilliant people working in brilliant isolation. We found soloists and we did not find much evidence of collaboration. And I think for the really big breakthroughs, it's collaboration uh, where we make those. So I'll maybe pause there and uh, pass over to you, Olivier. Sure. Listen, it's really fascinating, these dynamics between collaboration and competition. Um, in full disclosure, we're close friends. Um, and I know about your life, the personal and the professional life. And what is interesting is that you see Mark Pollock, but Mark Pollock is an ecosystem. He's an ecosystem of people, companies, organizations uh, that work all together, collaborate, but also challenge you on a daily basis. And I think one of the biggest person challenging you is your partner, Simone. For me, it's impossible to talk about Mark without talking about Simone and her role. Um, one thing I would like to, for, for you to share with us is building on the last video. You are one of the founding members of the Druid Collective, a group of young global leaders of a World Economic Forum and global shapers that are on a mission to bring deep tech innovation into real life to help startups and projects that are scientifically based, hardcore rigorous science um, in, onto the market. Can you just share with us how, in your particular case, what you've done with scientists has not only allowed to help better understand and move forward with curing paralysis, but also has business impact? Yeah, yeah. Well, I think, I think what we, coming into this, my only qualification was that I was paralyzed. 
you know, and what we found was there are these amazing people, in particular in UCLA, a guy called Professor Reggie Edgerton, using electrical stimulation of the spinal cord to allow for voluntary movement. You know, a, a massive breakthrough in the lab. But the transition from the lab into the world to move from the few, like me, who access the research, to the many around the world who don't have access to these technologies requires us to create companies, to fund those companies, to cross the valley of death, as they call it, for commercialization. And identifying problems with electrical stimulation, uh, commercializing, creating the devices to get out in the world, uh, they couldn't raise the money. They just couldn't raise the money. So we turned to a group of people in a network in the World Economic Forum. We created an initiative called the Druid Collective. And really what it was to do was to try and help amazing scientists and technologists to access business know-how, finance, um, to cross this valley of death. And what we did through that network, not by raising the money dollar by dollar, uh, but by connecting people with money to amazing scientists and amazing uh, experts, we were able to raise an initial five, $5 million to help create the initial prototypes. And the, e uh, the ecosystem that I, that I am part of is filled with challenges, and it's not going to be solved by any individual. It's going to be solved by many people finding a way to work together where everyone wins. You, you went a long way. I remember almost five years ago, I was with you at UCLA, and uh, Mark uh, crossed the quarter million step mark with his robotic legs, and this happened in the basement of UCLA. Mm -hmm. Basically, uh, you moved this top research from the basement of a <laughs> top research center to um, the public eye, and then to something that has become a business. And I think this is a benchmark way beyond what you're trying to achieve. The fact that there are so many scientists that are doing extraordinary things that we no longer hear about, for, uh, for starters, and second, that people don't benefit from. Mm -hmm. And I think that is, that is amazing what you've been able to achieve with a Mark Pollock Trust and with a Druid Collective. Um, let's turn to the room, and uh, we've got a microphone uh, circulating, um, and please, uh, we've got a lady on my right that has a question. Thanks so much for sharing the room. I think uh, someone must be chopping onions, uh, so I've got some dust in my eye or something like that. But um, <laughs> anyhow, um, my name is Sophie Bailey, I'm the founder and host of the EdTech podcast, um, and our latest series is about... Um, Education 4.0, so how do we teach in this fourth industrial age? I just wondered, given how you were talking about uh, ecosystems and, and bringing uh, sort of all those players together, whether you, you have any um, suggestions on, on how to kind of reflect that in our day-to-day -day education, be that in universities, colleges or schools, or beyond? Mm. Um. Now, of course, the big challenge in the questions and answers is not, not to just say something, but actually try and answer the question. So let's see how successful we are on, the, on this. You know, I have, I have a, the, the conflict or the, the, the perceived conflict between competition and collaboration um, 
is, is something that I've really been learning as we've gone through this particular journey. So I think from an education perspective, we need brilliant people being the best they can be, and that requires us to have a competitor's mindset. So I think that is the, found, the foundation. But um, for things to get done, we need to find a way, and I don't, I don't really completely have the answer on this uh, myself, but we need to find a way that, that those competitors and those people striving with ambition to move forward can come together and collaborate, because the word collaboration is bandied about in every country, every government, every society in the world. But in reality, we do it really, really badly. So in terms of your, your education, what you're designing, if you can find a way to get the best people in the world to work together um, and somehow park the massive egos that no doubt everyone has, uh, including someone talking about themselves on stage, uh, if we can find a way to collaborate that becomes normal, then I think we're going to do great things. Mark, building on this, um, yesterday night we had one of our usual late night conversations and you brought you brought up something that is very relevant to, to the question, is the fact that competition is necessary in order for science and technology to advance. There are generally several groups in the world that are working on similar topics and uh, they compete and they emulate each other. But at some point, uh, one needs some uh, organization, some ecosystem to allow them to work together. And this is what you have achieved so far, mm -hmm. is bringing people that were working in isolation yeah. to work together. At the education level, this is something that needs yeah. to happen as well. Yeah. Well, I, th I, think, what, I think what we're talking about is, is you know, selfish endeavors, which is sort of mm -hmm. around competition. We need, we need a certain amount of selfish endeavor, either by individuals, teams, in my case, university labs, perhaps by schools or countries. And we need that endeavor, but it's the selfless side of, side of things. I always think of it as the, you know, the game in science is to get funding for your lab so your lab can do, do work, uh, be financed and do interesting work. That's the game. It's very specific to the group. Publish articles, get more finance, keep things going. But if you elevate the game up to the grander prize, which in my case is curing paralysis in our lifetime, well then there's room for all these competitors to come under the, uh, the grander why. Agreed. So it's a sort of selfish and selfless together. Elevating the game in science, I love it. Um, another question, please? The lady in front of you, Mark. It's a privilege meeting you today, Mark. I'm just a very ordinary mortal. I'm a freelance writer with a lot of flaws and a lot of complexes. And listening to you talk today, I was just wondering, how do you not have any bitterness that life has made you this expert on pain, as you said? So I missed the last little bit there. Can you speak how a bit louder, please? I said, how do you not have any bitterness about the way life has made you an expert on pain, as oh. you said? Yeah, no, I definitely do. <laughs> uh, you know, and and. I was talking a little bit earlier on about um, Admiral Stockdale. I'm, partic I'm particularly interested in people who've experienced life at the extremes. And I think the, the, the realists of the world managed to confront the brutal facts 
and uh, keep hope alive. Now, in confronting the brutal facts for me, that suggests that we only look at the negative, in my case, blind and paralyzed. But to really confront the brutal facts, I have to also say that I can use my arms, that I live in a place and time in history where opportunities are abound, that I have lots of support around me and I have a chance. So to, re to, to truly be a realist, we have to start with all of the facts, the good, the bad, and the ugly. And um, certainly there was a lot of ugly crying uh, in hospital and uh, you know, bitterness for what had happened until eventually we start to move forward. So the brutal facts for me are that you know, I'm just telling you the best version of my story today, but it is all true. Loss, grief, acceptance and opportunity. It's all true. You're talking about losing your hair here, right? Absolutely. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, <laughs> How rude. <laughs> got a lady on the front row in front. Um, my name is Lopa Patel. I'm from the media. Thank you very much, Mark. Um, this is a personal question. You have a lot of tech in your life. What's your favorite piece of tech? Mm, yes, yes. Hmm. Well, I sometimes just, because events have moved on with the paralysis and everything, but the foundation tech, having access to the world through the internet and a talking computer and a talking phone, dealing with the blindness, really opens up my world. You know, having access to information is absolutely critical, and I know lots of people in the room around education. Access to information is not the norm for everyone. But it starts with access to information, and then what that has allowed me to do over time is find out about all these cool technologies. So the robots are brilliant, but they're not going to cure paralysis. They're like a Trojan horse to get in and have a conversation. The electrical stimulation, which is difficult to demonstrate visually, is the kind of the engine that's going to allow the human bodies to start to uh, function again. So, and then uh, I'm trying to get Emotive to uh, work with me on a brain-machine interface to roll into that entire mix. I've just told you all the technologies I'm using there, have I? <laughs> <laughs> no, but that's, that's and, great. And at basic level, a Braille watch so I can try and keep my timings. <laughs> which I'd failed at. We've got time for one last question, a lady on my right. Yeah. Hi Mark, my name's Shanti Clements from the Talal Institute. I was actually going to ask you a question about what was the experience like wearing those robotic legs and you've just alluded to that with the electrical s stimulation. Yeah. How yeah. was that for yeah. you? Well, well you know, um, I'm rewinding back to 2012 when I stood for the first time. You see. There, now I'm sitting beside a neuroscientist, so he may say that this explanation is nonsense, so this will be a stress test to see what I've been saying for years is nonsense. Whenever you're, you know, for your balance, use your sight, use feeling, proprioception, and the balance centers in your, in your brain at a basic level. The robotic legs gave a great chance to rise up out of the chair and move, you know, starting just with simple movement. My concern when I went over was that without sight and without feeling, I just simply wasn't going to be able to use this incredible technology. And when I went and stood for the first time in the robot, just, just standing up was incredible, never mind moving. I just felt, um, I felt like my old self. You know, I was able to stand up, 
I, my dad was with me at the time. I was able to give my dad a hug. Uh, you know, now it was mainly his head because he's a very short guy. Uh, but uh, it, it just was incredible to stand in that technology and know that my historic disability of blindness wasn't going to prevent me from accessing this technology as a foundation for everything that's come since. So, um, you know, a, a big relief, I suppose, was the emotion that I could use them and I wasn't going to just fall over again. No, and fr from a scientific point of view, so I was there um, when, when you started to use the, the robotic legs. And I think what is important is that at the beginning, the robot was walking and you were in the robot. Yeah. You, then you moved into having an active role in interacting with the legs. Yeah. And you switch from just being carried by the robot to yeah. controlling the robot. Yeah. And that is important. It's also important in the way the brain is going to evolve. Uh, with my company, we've recorded Mark's brain back then, and we're comparing his brain activity to the brain activity of people who are like Mark in a wheelchair, but don't have the possibility to use robotic legs. And the fact that even passive movement and semi-active movements allow to keep the motor and premotor functions in the brain is crucial. And this is something that beyond mobility and the ability to regain some autonomy is very, very important from a neuroscientific point of view. We got one extra question. We've got a very young lady uh, on your left that uh, is going to close the session. Good. Please introduce yourself. I think you're coming from very far. She's super shy. Can you tell us where you come from? Uh, Singapore. Wow, ah. what's your name, please? Shamini. All right. Tell us. Um, who inspired you when you were growing up? Who inspired who, who you ins when you were a kid? Who inspired me when I were, was a kid? Explorers, the explorers of people who do things for the first time, people who go to the South Pole, people who go to the moon. Amelia Earhart landed in Ireland, first flight across the Atlantic, I think. Uh, pe people who do things for the first time and don't, don't take no for an answer. Maybe that'll be you one day, eh? <laughs> Well, thank you so much, everyone.